This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Amazon announced that they're going to increase wages of all hourly workers in the United States, the minimum wage, to $15 an hour starting on November the 1st. That move is going to cover some 250,000 full and part-time workers, as well as another 100,000 seasonal workers. And they become the latest retailer to increase the hourly wage of workers. Target recently announced that it was going to increase its wages to workers to $15 an hour by 2020. Walmart is raising its hourly wage to $11 in the month of January. With more on this move by Amazon and the impact on company and workers, we are joined here in studio by Matthew Bidwell, Associate Professor of Management here at the Wharton School. Joining us on the phone, Marshall Meyer, Emeritus Professor of Management here at Wharton. And also joining us on the phone, Matt Johnson, who's a research scientist at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Matthew, great seeing you. Thanks for coming in. Nice to see you. Marshall, Matt, great to have you uh, both on the phone today. Thank you both. Great to be here. Good to be here. Thank you. So what do you think the impact is for Amazon specifically, Matthew, of them making this move on a variety of fronts. Obviously, the, there's an economic front, but there yeah. is also the the actual move to say, you know what, we need to increase wages of our workers to help them out. Yeah, I mean, it it obviously, like you say, plays out on a lot of fronts. I mean, first thing to remember is obviously it does cost them money, um, and you see their stock dip. I mean, frankly, by an imperceptible amount, but their shareholders weren't universally excited by this. So it does, you know, and particularly for a company that has traditionally very thin margins mm-hmm. and has kind of thrived on kind of a low-cost model, this is this is quite a big deal. Um, you know, on the other side, potentially, I think it, it makes good business sense. I mean, finally, we're in a reasonably tight labor market. And so if you're Amazon, that starts to be worrying, both in terms of your ability to staff up. I mean, particularly with the seasonal workers, Yeah. if you find you can't get people in the door, you've got to do it in a reasonably short period of time. And the costs of not doing so in terms of being able to fulfill, you know, all of the guarantees you've made to people are potentially quite high. And so, you know, the ability to staff up rapidly is going to be improved by this, which is good. Um you're going to reduce turnover on the margin, which is good. And it also, frankly, enables you to be a little more selective in your hiring on the margin. You are going to attract slightly better people with a higher wage. And so I think, you know, there are these business benefits in terms of how they manage people um, that they should see. And that was certainly when Walmart started this, what, about a couple of years ago when they started saying we're kind of going to have a institute a minimum wage in our stores substantially yeah. above the national minimum, national minimum wage, that was a lot of what they were talking about as well. And I think they've seen some of those benefits. There's obviously a political dimension to this as well. Yeah. Um, and so I think you know, as Walmart has found itself slightly out of the crosshairs on some of this stuff in recent years, Amazon is more so um, the juxtaposition between not necessarily their profits, but how much they're worth as a company versus, on the other hand, increasingly a large employer of low-wage workers has made them a very tempting political target. You've seen people go after them, and this is likely in some part also to be a response to that. Matt, your thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree with what Matthew said. I mean, I think, uh, you know, echoing what, what he said, you know, one thing for us to keep in mind is that when a company like Amazon raises its minimum wage... It's not doing it out of the 
goodness of its heart, it's doing it because it probably makes uh, economic and maybe political sense. So Matthew hit on, you know, the labor market impacts of this, but, you know, also politically, um, you know, I think one thing that's been very clear in this sector, in this retail sector, right, with Amazon and others is, you know, it's being a target politically, not just by lawmakers like Bernie Sanders introducing the Bezos Act, you know, coming pretty directly from Amazon, but also kind of from more grassroots movements, right? Amazon's been getting a lot of bad publicity, right? Because it's it's owner Jeff Bezos is the richest man in history in terms of his net worth, but, you know, its workers are having to rely on food stamps and, you know, its warehouses are some of the most dangerous places in the country to work. And I think, you know, this publicity, even above and beyond the labor market impacts, might be seen as something that could have an economic consequence for Amazon if customers start getting upset about this. And, you know, furthermore, there have been these kind of grassroots movements like our Walmart is one that's been uh, trying to lobby Walmart for improvements in working conditions. And right. I could imagine that Amazon, in taking this proactive move, is trying to stave off this uh, sort of pressure that might come from grassroots groups uh, in anticipation of that coming soon. Well, and if memory serves me, Matt, you're also talking about a time where uh, the, that uh, Whole Foods, one of their recent, recent acquisitions, workers at Whole Foods are trying to see if they can, if they can unionize, correct? Uh, I think I do remember hearing that. And uh, yeah, and I know that this, this, um, this policy will, of course, also cover, cover Whole Foods workers. And, yeah. you know, there's certainly a long history of um, what you might consider the union threat effect. If it's true that Whole Foods workers are considering trying to unionize, uh, it can make sense for employers to raise wages in anticipation of that to stave off the union yeah. threat. Marshall, how do you view this, this move uh, by Amazon, maybe more so from the corporate side? Um, I don't know if it's a corporate view or not. Okay. Um, uh, their business, I guess it is. Their business model uh, could be described, and this this is not um, a barbed criticism per se. Uh, it's simply what I'm reading. It could be described as predatory pricing. Amazon has always been there with the lowest possible prices, or at least has cultivated that perception. And what's interesting is that whereas this would have drawn attention of uh, antitrust authorities uh, in past years, uh, current antitrust doctrine uh, leaves them alone on the theory that uh, this has to be a a rational move in that at some point they'll recover from the predatory pricing. Um, The consequence of predatory pricing, a couple things. One is they have to keep wages low if they can maintain the model. Uh, The second thing is that, uh, as we know, their profits have been very thin, and yet the shares have soared uh, in anticipation that someday um, the predation will turn into profits. Now, here's a possibility. I can think of a couple possibilities. One possibility is that all of the pushback, whether it's from workers or most importantly, I think a recent article in the uh, Yale Law Journal um, raising questions about their pricing model. Um, uh, so pushback from activists, unions, legal scholars, on the one hand, uh, might force them into uh, raising wages a bit. Certainly the market does. We're going to talk about that. We've talked about it. Um, but here's something else. Uh, there are possible limits to their model. Uh, 
There are some businesses they seem to do exceedingly well, but, you know, they're branching out. Um, They're talking, for example, about establishing their own delivery fleet. They've purchased 20,000 Mercedes Sprinters uh, to do what, uh, for example, UPS does for them, hopefully at much lower cost. But the question is, can you do this with a low-wage structure? And I think that's a question uh, lots of folks are going to have to face. You mentioned something, Marshall, which I, I, I don't know if anybody has really talked about a lot, is the fact that there may be some sort of limit to Amazon's model. I think the perception has been, you know, what is the next area that Amazon is going to conquer? And right. seemingly there are more areas out there that they actually could go after. Right. And let me give an example to you. Um, uh, they're talking about, and in some, I think in some cities already, engaging in uh, uh, custom home audio installation right. at very low prices. Now, the question is this. Can they really do it? Um, uh, the, the question arises because uh, engaging labor to perform in-home installation is very expensive. You have to you have to vet people. Yeah. You have to train people. You have to supervise people closely. If Amazon thinks they can enter this business with their low-cost model, um, they may become another of what in the trade is called trunk slammers. I don't know if you heard that term or not. Mm, no. Um, these are folks who show up in their private car, they get their toolkit out of the trunk, they slam the trunk, they come in your house, they say no problem, and they botch the job. And so as they move towards services, yeah. the low-cost model might not work, and I think they'll be faced with labor costs much, much higher than they've experienced. Matthew? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that Marshall brings up, which um, is growing in importance as we think about companies like Amazon, is just their sheer size. So one of the um, one of the things that people are now really starting to talk about in the labor market is how we do have increasingly fairly small numbers of companies that are employing large numbers of workers yeah. in many sectors. And so I think Marshall talked about particularly the monopoly problems of, you know, if Amazon's engaging in predatory pricing, you know, the fact that its shares are so high, presumably because people think, well, eventually after it's driven everybody out of business, then sure. it will start raising its prices. I think there's also a concern on the other side, which is workers have very little bargaining power that um, they're able to drive down wages because, you know, in a lot of the areas where they operate, there's a huge fulfillment center and it's basically Amazon and nothing else. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think this is in part a response to those criticisms, um, but it also, you know, to some extent, it also, I think, reflects their power. They get to make their own weather, right? They yeah. get to decide on this because they are the labor market in certain areas. It, it is interesting, when, when, especially considering we're heading into the, the, the holiday season in a little while, and, you know, people will be looking for those part-time jobs to pick up to make a, a little extra cash. The, the thing I find interesting is that it almost feels like 
this is the new way that these retailers are saying, okay, if we throw out $15 an hour, we'll be able to get anybody we want to come work for us. And it's almost like it's a, it's a little bit of a one-upsmanship by all of these retailers, not, as you said, not so much worried about the quality of the individual, but just being able to fill the spot in part because of where we are with the employment situation in this country. Yeah, it's, I mean... I mean, I think the other side of this um, this story is it's a wonderful sign, right? I mean, we have spent pretty much the last 10 years saying, where's wage growth? Um, and I think particularly, you know, we have seen wage growth in the top few percent of the market, yeah. um, of the labor market, where we have, where people have been struggling is kind of at the bottom end of the labor market. And so from that perspective, I think this is a very nice sign that both you know, even though we're still not seeing the widespread wage growth you would expect of this unemployment, it may be feeding through, and it's feeding through in those lower-wage jobs where I think we worry most about what's going on. Matt, uh, Jeff Bezos, in, in making this announcement, uh, was quoted as saying that he is going to try and lobby Washington to try and increase the minimum wage. And the minimum wage has obviously been a topic that has been discussed a lot in the last few years, whether it be at the federal level, but maybe even more so at the state and local level. So I guess the question is, is Washington the right place to tackle this fight, in your opinion? Or is there a benefit to looking at cities and states and how they view the minimum wage? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, um yeah, because it's worth, you know, remembering that the Amazon's new minimum wage of fifteen dollars is going to be over double the federal minimum wage of seven twenty-five, if I remember correctly. Yep. Um, so, you know, in, in, in some ways, uh, so if, if your question is where is the most politically savvy arena for Jeff Bezos to lobby, um, certainly it seems like lobbying in Washington is the most highly visible, which could make it the most savvy, right? And, and it makes sense in that if Amazon is able to pay this higher minimum wage, it might make sense for it to lobby for a higher federally mandated minimum wage to force its competitors to also pay that higher wage. So this could be you know, a useful and good strategic move for Amazon. Um, you know, in terms of where, uh, whether it could also be lobbying uh, states and cities, um, you know, that's interesting, especially given uh, you know, the current kind of fever around where it's going to select its HQ2, right? Um, yeah. You know, I live in Durham, which is near one of the cities that it's considering in Raleigh, and I know everyone's on the edge of their seat here. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if, um, you know, part of that selection gets weaved into uh, how it might lobby its local and state officials on these minimum wage policies. But there is, the, as you all have said, the political element to this. Uh, Matthew and, and Bernie Sanders, who is one of the people that's been very critical of Amazon, he had tweeted out uh, prior when uh, Amazon hit their one trillion dollar market cap, their valuation. He said Amazon worth one trillion, Jeff Bezos worth one hundred and fifty five billion, thousands of Amazon workers have to rely on food stamps, Medicaid, and public housing to survive. And that's something that has really spurred on this movement. Obviously, you have the fight for fifteen as well, but that in part, has spurred on this move to try and get better wages for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the U.S. economy has changed a lot over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, one of the things we worry about a lot is you're seeing these sky-high valuations of companies. There have been large returns to shareholders, 
You know, whereas we like to think of shareholders as widows and orphans with their stocks, in reality, the vast majority of shareholder shareholdings are owned by at least the top 10 percent in yep. terms of wealth. So you've seen huge returns to them and kind of stagnation at the lower level. This is just another manifestation of this. I, I mean, it's tricky. It's hard to I find it hard to blame Amazon for what is in many ways kind of a system wide um, problem. I mean, I think also what you are starting to see is this, you know, given the politics of it, the large corporations are starting to up their game. Um, one thing it may do is just increase the gap between them and kind of what are all of the other smaller employers who still are offering low wages. Right. And I think one one thing to watch a little bit is as Amazon and other companies do this, it may also increase the temptation for them to outsource more work, right? It's one thing to say we pay all our employees sure, yeah. $15 an hour, right. but suddenly the outsourced vendor who's paying their workers $8 an hour is going to look a lot more attractive. Um, and so, you know, that is one response you sometimes see here. Marshall, your thoughts? Um, just to follow on what Matthew said and then to go another place. Um, outsourcing takes a couple forms. You can outsource it to another company, which they already do, for example, a lot of delivery through USPS or through FedEx or uh, through UPS. So they've been in the outsourcing business. The problem is that sort of outsourcing proves expensive. So what are they now doing? They're establishing, in effect, their own Uber system. I think they bought, again, 20,000 Mercedes Sprinters. Um, are the drivers going to be employees? Uh, I'm not sure. I think they're going to be independent contractors. I'm not certain about that. But that's the form of outs the, uh, form the outsourcing may take which, again, uh, keeps the wages down. Uh, on the other side, never underestimate Jeff Bezos. And it's, he'll never tell you which way he's going. He may not know which way he's going. He's keeping his options open. Just a piece of history. I had um, uh, both the good fortune of listening to Jeff Bezos speak to a relatively small audience in the early 90s when we thought he was in the book business. We all scratched our heads and figured and asked ourselves, how the hell are you going to make a profit operating on that model? Right. We didn't understand that he was in the business of accumulating customer information and really didn't care about short-term profits uh, because he, unlike the rest of us, understood platform economics. Today, more and more of us understand platform economics and some of the opportunities and some of the risks it poses, especially to wages. Um, now, what's he thinking about today? Again, he can be thinking about, as everyone's discussed, the headwinds, right? Mm -hmm. There are political headwinds, there are legal headwinds, etc., all coming up. Um, he can also be thinking about Thomas Piketty. You know, the book, uh, uh, what it's called, Capital in the 21st Century, and Piketty's has very simple observation fundamentally. When rates of return to capital exceed GDP growth, uh, wage inequality balloons. This is what's happened. Right. Okay. And he may be thinking, remember he owns the Washington Post. Amazon doesn't, but Jeff Bezos does personally, right? Yep. He may be thinking that this system is unsustainable. And as a consequence, may be seeking in his own way to change it a little bit. I don't know the answer to that. But again, I go back to what I said in the, at the beginning of this comment, never underestimate Jeff Bezos and never try to second guess him. Matt? Yeah, I mean, I think that's 
I think that's right. Um, I think it's easy to be cynical about this, um, and that may sometimes be the right response. But yeah. I, I think there is also, I'm at least open to the possibility that there is underlying this also kind of at the level of Bezos and or kind of Amazon top management, you know, these conflicting. On the one hand, we want to make as much money as possible. On the other hand, we look at this system, we see it's not working very well, and, you know, what are we doing about it? I mean, I think... I mean, if you look back historically, um, I would argue that, you know, one of the, the sad things about the current state of affairs is ultimately we leave these things to major philanthropists yeah. deciding, yeah, that's you right. know, I'm incredibly rich and powerful, maybe I'll change things as opposed to and this is probably not a view shared by a lot of your listeners as opposed to having stronger unions who can actually push for these sorts of things or a regulatory state which is able to balance some of these interests and so it, yeah again if we're going to have large powerful corporations we'd rather they were responsible but in the long run some set of other um other powerful interests that represent other stakeholders in society would be even better. Matt Johnson, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I think those are both great points. You know, um, as Marshall said, um, you know, for better or worse, Jeff Bezos, given how large Amazon is and how much it's growing and how much of the U.S. economy it represents, it actually does have a stake in whether or not the U.S. economy as it's currently on is, is sustainable. And, uh, you know, given uh, Marshall's point about Piketty, I mean, Be Bezos could be looking at as the long term and thinking that Amazon can actually be a driving force to get it on a more sustainable path. That, that may very well be the case. But um, just as Matthew said, a real question for, for us is, you know, even if Bezos has those good intentions, it, it, you know, as a society, we want to ask, do we want to be in a situation where a few powerful executives and other, you know, whatever, billionaire philanthropists are the ones who make these decisions. And it's really at their disposal to turn the page and change direction. So, you know, this, this is a, maybe a time for reflection to think about if that's the system we want and uh, what other sorts of institutions can help uh, align the balance of power. Well, isn't it to a degree, uh, Matthew, it's just continuing the, the narrative about the, the wage gap, the, the, the wealth gap in, in the United States right now, and to a degree in many places around the world, that if you have more people with the wealth having to do more, that, that also means there's probably a negative impact down the chain as well. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think it, yeah, it's, you can't look at this story without also, without also reflecting on what's driven us to this point in yeah. terms of, you know, corporations themselves saying, you know, wow, wages are so unbelievably low. We're going to raise them even though we don't necessarily strictly have to. Right, um, yeah. Does say something depressing about where we started. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number if you would like to join in. Matthew Bidwell from the Wharton School, uh, along with Marshall Meyer, and uh, also uh, Matt Johnson from Duke University, joining us. I, I guess Marshall, it, it, that brings up a good point to to kind of finish this off on is the fact that you do have these companies that are looking to to a degree and obviously bezos is maybe the exception rather than the rule make an impact make a cultural impact in this country it's a great thing to see 
but is it is it truly the path that we need to be looking at to go down over the next 50 years, 100 years? I don't know the answer to that. Um, and, uh, but, but, but the facts, uh, as, as I see them, are um, uh, a, little, a little disturbing. And I'll tell you what they are. Look at the trajectory of federal domestic programs. That number... Uh, uh, shrinks, certainly in real dollar terms, every year, because after so-called entitlements and defense and after payments on the national debt, which now exceed defense, not much is left for domestic programs, and particularly domestic programs uh, uh, providing educational health, social support to people. Private charity will shortly exceed federal payments for health, education, welfare, social support, etc. Those lines could easily cross. And so the scenario where corporate titans or corporate titans turn philanthropists have more to say about the shape of our society, the texture of our society, then our elected representatives poses, I think, a very important question. We've barely begun to face sure. up to this. Great having you all with us today. Matthew, great seeing you. Thank you for Thank coming you. in. Marshall, Matt, great to have you on the phone with us today. Thank you both. Thank you, Dan. Good talking with you. Thank you. Matthew Bidwell here in studio from the Warren School, along with uh, Marshall Meyer on the phone from the Warren School and Matt Johnson from Duke University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.